1. We'll be looking at verses 3 through 12, second week in our series on 1 Peter. 1 Peter 1, 3 through 12. If you don't have a Bible, we would uh, love to give you one as a gift. They're at our info table. Uh, just, just take one on your way out. Uh, the passage is also in the bulletin and, and on the screen for us as well. And this is quite a dense passage. I mean, it's like nine verses of, of very dense, compact stuff. And I, I love that I get this after Scott preaches on two verses last week. Um, he takes those two, and he preaches like on every single word is like a point in the sermon. And, I, and then he gives me this huge chunk, so things that aren't fair in life, but uh, we're going to do our best. And uh, it is a beautiful passage. Uh, and so I just want us to draw our attention to it as we come to it and, and ask the Lord to be here. It is an amazing uh, explanation of the faith that we have. So listen to God's word. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. You getting all this? Good. Me too. In this, you rejoice. Though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen Him, you love Him. Though you do not now see Him, you believe in Him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. This is God's Word. I made a mistake uh, a few months ago uh, in buying my son, who just was turning four years old, uh, an ant farm for his birthday. Uh, we were in Barnes & Noble picking up a few happies for him just for his fourth birthday, and we saw these ant farms. We thought it was a great idea. Uh, but it was a mistake on a couple of different levels. First of all, this is just a little pro tip for you if you're thinking about investing in an ant farm. Um, they don't come with live ants uh, in them, which makes a lot of sense in retrospect. Um, but they don't come with ants, and so then there's no really good way to get ants. Um, so we had him open this present, and then it's like, okay, well, now you're going to have to wait until we can get some ants. And they don't sell them at pet stores. Uh, they don't sell, you know, you can gather them from your backyard, but you might be gathering them from different warring tribes or something. So you, you don't want to do that. I did all this online research. Um, and then you, you buy these ants online, and they ship them to you uh, in a little tube. And uh, it takes like six to eight weeks. So just so you know, if you're planning to give someone that as a gift, wait six or eight weeks so you can get the live ants to go with it. That was the first mistake. The second mistake was apparently we aren't very good ant farmers. Uh, because when we got these ants, we put them into the farm, and uh, it was awesome. They started dig you know, digging all these tunnels and 
uh, making this beautiful path. And, uh, but then they started to die, like really fast. Uh, so a couple of days later, we started out with maybe 30 or so, and then it was like 25, and then it was like 20, and then it was like 15. It just kept going down until there were four valiant ants left. Um, and they lived for longer than the rest, a few days. Uh, and then, uh, then we woke up one day, and there was no movement in the ant farm whatsoever. And uh, we thought, well, this is over. And so for a couple of days, we just let it sit there. It's, it's still on our mantle. Uh, and, uh, but then, out of the ashes rose one valiant ant that we thought was dead, but wasn't, apparently. And he rose up, and he survived the ant apocalypse, and he's living, and we thought, well, this is not going to, I mean, it's not going to be very long before he dies. Well, seven weeks later, here we are. Our ant is still alive uh, in th- this uh, farm that we have, and it's still sitting on our mantle, and we pass it all the time, and it is the most hopeless scenario you can imagine. It just, like, burdens us um, so much to see this ant struggling in there. And what do you do? You can't add other ants into there because, like I said, they can war against each other. It doesn't seem right to release them into the wild. So, like, what are we going to do? So we just let him sit there, and it is so hopeless. Like, it's like, it's like he's just like this picture of, of loneliness and futility. You know, uh, he's in there by himself, in this world by himself, and he keeps working, right? I mean, he, this is what ants do. He keeps grabbing little grains of sand and building tunnels ever so slowly, and it is so, so sad. And we're, like, projecting all of our feelings onto this ant um, about how depressed he is and he probably thinks that life's pointless and all these things. Um, and some of you are like, oh, that is so sad. Some of you are like, it's just an ant. Get over it, you know. I say that. It's a silly point. But I do wonder if, if some of us can relate to the feelings that we're maybe projecting onto the ant. But this, this kind of hopeless picture of life, the life of futility and loneliness. At times, maybe not all the time, but it feels like at times our lives are, have this futile nature to them. We don't live with a lot of hope. That wouldn't be a word that we describe our lives with. Like, what are you? You are a hopeful person. I think for many of us it wouldn't be that. If we were pushed to kind of describe what is your life, like what's the dominant emotion or attitude of your life, if we were honest, it might be something like frustration. Because many of us live like we aren't day-to-day getting what we need or we deserve, and so we live in this constant state of frustration. Maybe that's not you. Maybe you live in a constant state of, of boredom or apathy. If you were to describe one thing, sure, you have moments where you're happy and it's good, but, but overall, what your life is, it's not very exciting to you, and you kind of live in this flat place, and you wouldn't describe your life as hopeful. It would be, it'd be flat or boring. Maybe the word that you would use to describe yourself would be fear. A lot of your life um, is characterized by fear of other people, not wanting to step on other people's toes, not wanting to offend people-pleasing, fear of God, fear of the future. How many of us would really say we are hopeful people? We live with hope. In fact, what I want us to see today is that is the dominant attitude of the Christian life. That's our main point today. The dominant attitude of the Christian should be living hope. The dominant attitude of the Christian life should be living hope. Now, how can I say that? 
Uh, and I do want to say just a couple of caveats to begin with. That's not the only emotion in the Christian life, of course. All we have to do is read the Psalms to see that we're supposed to be angry sometimes. We're so, it's okay to be in a season of depression. It's okay for all these things. And if you come in in one of those places today that is a biblically good place to be, that is okay. It really, really is. But if your life is never characterized by hope, then you are not living fully into the Christian story. Here's where I get this. Verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He's caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. You see, we are born again into a living hope. It's not an optional thing like, oh, you can, you can be hopeful if you want to. What you were born again into, the, the characteristic of the Christian life is one of hope. Ever since Jesus has been raised from the dead, that's kind of a big deal, Peter's saying. It kind of shapes everything else that we're supposed to live in. That's the dominant attitude of the Christian life. And of course, I'm not saying that all the time we should just have our best life now. Um, you know, I'm not saying that we should just be happy, clappy Christians all the time. Just put a smile on your face. I'm not saying any of that stuff, so don't hear what I'm saying, not saying this morning. What I am saying is if you're not able to lift yourself out of that, if you're not able to live with some amount of hope in your life, you're not fully into the Christian story because it is a hopeful one. By definition, the, the Christian faith is nothing if not hopeful, right? That's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15. Hey, if the resurrection didn't happen... This is dumb, what we're doing right now. This is not good, the use of your time. It's pointless, it's futile. But if it did happen, then it changes everything. And that future hope is the thing that's supposed to drive us. Another way to put this, just kind of the the big question I want to put over this time that we have together is this. To ask yourself, do you realize what you have? Do you realize what you have in Jesus Christ Because if you did, if I did, and we dwelled there, we would be people of living hope. I want to remind us what it is that we do have. Do you realize what you have? Well, here's what you have. I want to talk about the benefits and the privilege of the Christian faith. The benefits and the privilege. Um, So first, the benefits. There are three benefits I see from this passage. It's reminding us what we have and Jesus. And the first one is this. The first benefit that we have is that your reward is secure. Your future reward is secure. That's what it says uh, in verse, into verse 3. Born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. Kept in heaven for you. Or you could translate it, guarded in heaven. It's watched. It's kept there for you. This inheritance that you have. And that word inheritance is really, really significant because if you have read the Bible before, uh, this is the same word that's used to describe the inheritance that uh, Israel receives from God in the promised land in the Old Testament, right? So Israel was in bondage in Egypt. They were freed from Egypt. They wandered around for 40 years in the desert. God promised them the future hope of a, of a promised land. And when they received that promise, he said, now I'm giving you an inheritance. This is your inheritance. These, these plots of land that he gave to each tribe of Israel. 
And so what he's saying here is in the same way that Israel was given the future hope of a promised land, you are given the future hope, the secure hope of an inheritance forever. Except it's better. Because it is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. That was not true of the first inheritance that Israel received, right? We, Scott mentioned this last week. They didn't hold on to that inheritance for very long. They couldn't. It was polluted. It was defiled. It was taken away from them, and they were judged. But he says, for you, your inheritance is future, and it's secure. It's kept in heaven for you, and it's not going anywhere. It, was, it is good. And it's just a reminder to us that so often we live like what's happening in my life, the rewards that are in this life, are the most important thing, right? Now, God's given us lots of good gifts, of course. We're not, we're not diminishing those. But do you recognize that you have a future hope and a future glory that is secure for you? I saw a few months ago uh, a YouTube video where a guy named Francis Chan, many of you probably heard of him, he's a pastor, evangelist, conference speaker, and he's He's given this, this talk, and, and on the stage with him, up on his podium, he's got a rope. And the rope extends way past off the stage, like into eternity. We don't know where this rope ends. Uh, but the, rope, the other end of the rope is, is here, and it ends, and it's got a little red section at the end of the rope. And, and he said, this is your life you know, before you die, basically. This is all of who you are, and the, the rest is, is eternity. And it's maybe a little overbearing, but I think it's a significant point. What he says is, is in that moment, um, when we're thinking about our lives and the joys of our lives, we think so much about what happens right here. And we think, you know, oh, when I get married, that's going to be amazing. You know, and he moves like a centimeter down. When I have kids, when I retire one day, like, and he just keeps moving, it's like, that's going to be great right there. And he says, why do we spend so much time thinking about that? Those aren't bad things to think about, aren't bad things to dwell in or rejoice in, of course. But what we're reminded of is we have an imperishable, undefiled, unfading inheritance that is future, and that's our hope. Our ultimate hope is not a future state here in this life. It's somewhere else. It's here, but in the renewed heaven and earth. Do you think about that? Do you dwell on that? And what would change in your life if you did? Your reward is secure. Second benefit, do you realize that your trials are meaningful? Your trials are meaningful. Trials, suffering, hardship, it's going to be a lot of talk about that in 1 Peter. What is hopeful about this? Well, in my opinion, Christianity, and I hope yours as well, offers the best hope in suffering. There is no other comparison to be made. Because everybody has to wrestle with this question. Often Christians are accused, you know, well, if you believe in God, why are so many bad things happening in the world? As if we're the only people that have to answer that question. Everyone has to deal with that question. And what I believe the Christian life gives us is resources beyond anything else. Let me just give you an over, overview real quick of what the Christian view of suffering is. Trials. Number one, we cause suffering. Mankind caused suffering. It's not something that God brought into the world. We brought it in through our sin 
in the garden. We brought this. Number two, suffering is evil. This is what the Bible teaches. It's not good. When somebody says, well, it's good that you're going through this trial. No, it's not. It's not a good thing in and of itself. Suffering is not good. God hates suffering. It's evil. Number three, God suffered in order to end suffering. This is the gospel, right? Jesus took on the weight of suffering so that he could start the process wherein we will end with no suffering, no tear, no pain, Revelation promises us. He ends it, he ends suffering in his own suffering. But in the meantime, what about in between now and when that happens? Now the amazing thing is that God uses suffering. He uses it. He uses it for his own glory, and he uses it for your good. And the, the metaphor here, I'm sure you've heard before, it's one of gold being refined. Verse 6, If necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. You see what he's saying? It's like the process of refining gold. Gold starts out a lot bigger um, in the early part of the process, and then it is tested with fire. That's the, the metaphor for the suffering, and it, it, it takes away all the impurities of the gold, and what's left is something that is a little bit less, but it is more valuable and more beautiful because of that process. And that's the metaphor that he uses to describe your sufferings. It's not meaningless. It's not just happening to you for some odd reason. God is using that, whatever it is, to make you more beautiful and useful in his kingdom and in your life. I mean, do you realize what you have in this understanding of suffering? I just want to do a little exercise real quick. Where I want to ask you, to think about for just one second mentally, what is the biggest trial in my life right now? What's the biggest trial? Where is suffering the greatest? I'm going to just be quiet for a few seconds and let you think about that for just a minute. God is using that to make you more beautiful and valuable in this life and or the next. That's the promise of Scripture. That seems like trite. Um, It's hard to believe that, and no one understands that more than me. This is so hard when you are in this. It doesn't feel like what we're talking about. Our friends, we have some friends, Eric and Elizabeth, Went to um, college and seminary with Eric. We've known them for a long time. <clears throat> and it's one of those situations where I've always been a step behind Eric in life kind of sequence. Um, Eric, he was a year ahead of me in school, so he graduated from college. And then a year later, I graduated. Uh, he moved to seminary. Uh, a year later, I moved to seminary. Uh, he got married. Uh, on Memorial Day weekend, a year later on Memorial Day weekend, I got married. Um, you know, he had a kid several years later after that, and then a year later after that, I had a kid, and then another, and then another. And so it's like our lives are like mirrors of each other, and I'm always one step behind him. 
It's a joke between us. So, you know, you're always one step behind. His wife, Elizabeth, was diagnosed with stage 3 colon cancer this week. <clears throat> and uh, I haven't been able to even process it, really. Like, somebody starts talking to me about it. I, I'm like, I just can't talk about this right now. Um, I can't process what's happening. Not to Elizabeth. That can't possibly be the case. And it makes me think about my life, and it makes me think, you know, well, maybe in some significant way, I'm next, you know. Of course, I suffer even now in certain ways, but suffering like that hasn't been a part of my story, and so I wonder about that. What is gonna, what's on the horizon for us? And uh, so I'm on Facebook, and they've been posting updates, of course, and... Um, he said this, among many other posts, really encouraged me. He said, God is sovereign and good. We trust that he will continue to care for us through this process, even as he already has. Every moment of life is bursting with glory, and this has reminded us both how much each one should be treasured and lived. We are so grateful for continued prayer and support as we walk into this next chapter of our story. I know this guy really well. He's not putting a smile on his face. He understands the Christian view of suffering. He understands that he doesn't have to be happy all the time. But what I'm struck by is knowing him and knowing that that he believes in Jesus. And it makes his life hopeful. He believes in the resurrection from the dead and the life everlasting, what we confessed we believed earlier in this service. And because his hope is living that trial is meaningful. There's no other way to, there's no better way to deal with that. What do we have in the alternative to that? Right? What are trials all about? What's suffering all about? Maybe if you don't believe in God, it's just this, the universe has dealt you a bad hand. You're a statistic, and you just happen to just get this. Go ahead and feel hopeful about that. Maybe it's karma. You're suffering because of something else you did that was wrong in this life or a previous life. Maybe if you're extreme Darwinian approach, you're suffering because you're weak. And the system is purging itself. There's no hope in any of those ways. The hope is found in the one who took on suffering himself and ends it. And now in the meantime, uses it for his glory and for your good. Do you realize what you have in Jesus? Your reward is secure and your trials are meaningful. They make sense and they will bring you into a better place. The third benefit is this. Your life can be joyful. Your life can be joyful. This whole passage is so, it's overflowing with positivity. It's just, it's beautiful. It's like he wrote this, this blessing for us. And he keeps talking about rejoicing. And in verse 8, he says, You believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible, filled with glory. When's the last time you experienced that? Inexpressible joy because of what you have in Jesus. Have you experienced that Christian joy? When was the last time? 
And of course, it's not saying this is always the case, and he's not saying the, the audience of 1 Peter, like you are all, you're doing that all the time. What he's doing is he's encouraging them towards that. You can have this joy that's inexpressible. It reminded me of a hymn by John Wesley, one of his most famous, Love Divine, All Love Excelling. And here are some of, the, some of the words from that hymn. When all thy mercies, O my God, my rising soul surveys, transported with the view, I'm lost in wonder, love, and praise. You see what he's saying? When I survey the mercies I have, when I think about, when I wake up and I realize what I have in you, it leads to this state where I'm lost in wonder, love, and praise. It's not all the time, of course. It's not sustained all the time. But maybe it's been a while since you've had that Christian sense of joy because you haven't been surveying His mercies. Putting them in front of your face. Thinking about them. Dwelling in them. Reading about them. Because when you do that, here's what you have. In Jesus, you have the opportunity for joy. Not happy, empty, whatever, but joy at what God has given you. Those are the benefits. Secondly, I want us to see this, the privilege. Same question. Do you realize the privilege that you have? The privileged position that you have. This is the end of the passage, verses 10 through 12. Perhaps you were confused in in reading it. It's a very convoluted kind of section. Um, something about prophets, and they, they looked forward and they inquired carefully, uh, and then they did all this for you, not for, them, not for themselves, but for you. And then, of course, it ends in this really enigmatic statement, things into which angels long to look. What is this teaching us? What it's teaching us is basically this. The salvation you have is a privileged position. Your position in history post-resurrection of Jesus Christ. We live in the last days, if you understand the way that the Bible thinks about time. Since the resurrection, you live in a privileged position. The prophets looked forward to this moment. Said They inquired carefully. They gave their lives to serving you. They were not serving themselves. They were serving you. Do you realize that they were looking forward to the day that you're now experiencing? Not only were they looking forward, but angels looked down on it with longing to be a part of the privileged position that you have. I wish I had time to talk more about angels and stuff. There's some fascinating things in the Bible. I just want to read one verse from Hebrews 1.14 just to try to get us understanding of what does this mean, angels long to look into this. This is what it says in Hebrews 1. Are angels not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? See what it's saying? It's saying angels serve those who inherit salvation. Who are the ones who inherit salvation? We are. We are in the privileged position into which angels long to look. How, what does that even mean? That's, it's a mystery. But we have a privileged relationship with God, and it's actually a restored relationship because we had a privileged relationship to begin with in the garden. Adam and Eve were created and were made kings and queens of the world, right? This is uh, 
Psalm 8, you crowned us with glory and honor. That We were his vice regents of, of all creation. We have a privileged position with God amongst all the created order. And then we lost that when, that when that sin came in and broke that relationship. But what he's saying is you have a privileged, restored relationship with God because of the resurrection. It's coming back. This is why you love the Chronicles of Narnia. And if you don't, just check your pulse, man. Like, it's awesome. It's been awesome for decades, and Christians, non-Christians, we love the Chronicles of Narnia. Why? Because but the Chronicles of Narnia doesn't make any sense, really. I mean, let's even bracket out talking animals and magical world, right? Let's assume those things are true. Even within that system, it doesn't make sense. What am I talking about? Aslan creates a magical world and he places four thrones (laughs) and they have to be filled by the rightful kings and queens which are little British kids. (laughs) Doesn't make any sense. (laughs) Why? That rings true. We love that story. Why? It rings true with us Because that is akin to what we have in this privileged position. God places glory and honor into us. And the future, this is all about the future hope that we have, is that that relationship is restored in the the best possible way. And we are, again, stewards of God's creation. We have this privileged position with God. And angels long to look into that. Do you realize the privileged position that you have. Our benefits are many. We could go on all day about it, but we have a secure reward. Our trials are meaningful. Our joy, joy is possible in this life. And then we have the privilege of a restored relationship with God. But I want to close with this. None of those benefits and privileges matter whatsoever if you are not born again into a living hope. At the risk of sounding like an old Baptist preacher, <laughs> not normally our vibe, if you're new, but it's true. You must be born again to experience this joy. All of this is for us who are born again into the living hope because of the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. How can you be born again? Well, that's the funny thing about birth. You know, the only way it doesn't really have anything to do with you. Right? I don't know if you remember your birth or had much to do with it. I kind of just became aware of mine four or five years after the fact. I think most of us did. But if God's brought you here today and He's stirring something in you, that means He has moved you to this point then it is about exercising your faith to be born again into this living hope. How do you do that? It's simple and it's hard. (laughs) It's simple and it's hard. Number one, you repent. So what the Bible teaches, you repent. You say, I am not worthy. I, I cannot control my life on my own. I just can't do it. You have to come to the place not only where you can say that, but you experience that. You experienced that you cannot do it on your own. You repent of trying. 
Number two, you believe in Jesus. You believe in him. You say, I can't do it, but he can. And you put your trust in him. Maybe not all right away. It's okay. You don't have to fully believe in everything he says or understand everything about this Christianity. All it takes is, is that one initial step of repenting and believing in Jesus and being baptized. The outward sign of the inward reality that's happening in here, that's obedience to Scripture, the sign of what God has done. And then you follow Jesus with your life. Your work is about him now. Your family is about him now. Your ambition is about him. Like I said, simple but hard. But the benefits and the privilege outweigh the cost. The benefits are a life of living hope. You can be born into that. And for those of us who have, who have put our faith in Jesus and we are born again into this living hope, I just want to remind us you weren't born again into frustration. You weren't born again into boredom and apathy in your life. You weren't born again into fear. You weren't born again into selfishness or however, whatever dominant attitude just kind of grips your heart and controls your week. What you were born again into is a living hope in Jesus. That should drive you. Is your hope alive? Let's pray. God, your word is living and active, sharper than a two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit. It is real. And as we read it, we are cut in a good way. We're refined in this fire. I pray that you would help us to wake up and realize what we have in you. That we would stop living like other things are better, more important, more desirable than knowing and walking with you. We can only do this through your help the Holy Spirit. So we ask that you would be here even as we take of the supper. Seal this to our hearts. Put it in our bellies, Lord, so that we live this way. This is our food and drink to do the will of the Father. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. As we come to the table,